Welcome back to the program. There's a principle in physics known as the uncertainty principle. The idea is simply that it's impossible to observe or measure certain phenomenon without having an impact on that which is being observed or measured. In many ways, we might look for the same impacts among the images of war and disaster. What do images of war tell us about suffering of people in faraway places? Images that do more than report. They can inspire dissent, foster violence, or create sympathy or apathy. They often tell us about the nature of war and the obligations of conscience. Sometimes they even make us think or feel about the reality that goes beyond what any picture can convey. If you understand this better than my guest, Lindsay Adario, one of the greatest photographers of our time, her work has appeared regularly in the New York Times. She's a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant and the Pulitzer Prize. And it is my pleasure to welcome Lindsay Adario here to talk about her memoir, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. Lindsay Adario, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Delight to have you here. You picked up a camera when you were about 13 years old, and you've been taking pictures ever since. Talk a little bit about the transition from being a photographer and taking pictures to becoming a photojournalist, to becoming a journalist. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. I think uh, my father gave me my first camera when I was about 12, 13, and I had no training, so I just bought a book on how to photograph and taught myself and would spend, uh, I spent several years just trying to muster up the courage to photograph people because it was, it felt so intrusive to me. So for me, I would go photograph the cemetery or flowers or any inanimate objects. And it really took a long time to get up the courage to, to shoot people. And then Eventually, uh, I was studying international relations and Italian at the University of Wisconsin. And when I graduated, I wanted to move to Argentina to learn Spanish. I had already lived in Italy as an undergraduate, and so I wanted to move to Latin America. So I moved to Argentina, and it was there that I became aware of newspapers and images in the newspaper and the power of images to tell a story. And I started really engaging in that. And I had, uh, at the time, I had a partner who was, uh, he was a journalist, and he really introduced me to that world as well. And so there, I really picked up on photojournalism, and I started paying attention. One of the early things that you did in Buenos Aires was photographing Madonna when she was there uh, filming Evita. <laughs> yeah, I had gone into the Buenos Aires Herald, uh, many times, actually, and I kept going in, and the photo department consisted of two uh, middle-aged men who would sort of smoke cigarettes all day in the <laughs> photo in the photo department, and, and just, uh, I wasn't sure they even photographed anymore, <laughs> and they, um, and I kept going in and saying, can I have a job, can I have a job, and they said, you have no experience, no, and, and I was so persistent, and they said, go learn Spanish and come back, and I went and did everything they asked me to do. And, and finally, I went in one day and they said, look, Madonna is filming Evita at the Casa Rosada. And if you can sneak on the set and get a picture of Madonna, we'll give you a job. And so basically, I was so determined to, to do this for a living that I went and I talked my way onto the set and, and got in and uh, convinced the bouncer who was convinced the guy in charge of the press area that. I would be famous one day, and my whole career depended on him, and please let me in, and he let me in. But then when I got on the, the press riser, I had only a 50-millimeter lens, and we were like kilometers or miles away from Madonna. I mean, you couldn't even see the Casa Rosada. And so 
I sort of stood there not knowing what to do. And of course I didn't have a big lens because I was totally poor making $10 a picture. And this guy just tapped me on the shoulder and said, another journalist, another photographer. And he said, Hey kid, give me your camera back. And I sort of looked at him like, why am I going to give this guy my camera back? And I didn't even know that a Nikon lens could go on any Nikon camera. And so I sort of took my lens off my camera and he put my camera back on his 600 millimeter lens or whatever it was. And, and there was the scene, right, in my viewfinder, and I sort of started squealing, <laughs> and I ended up having the front page of the Buenos Aires Herald, and that was my first job. And in fact, you were equally persistent in wanting to go to work for the New York Times. You kept after the photo department there for a pretty long time. Yeah, I did. I kept checking in. I would try and meet their their local correspondent in Buenos Aires. I, I tried to meet the correspondent there, and and I'm sure they get approached by dozens, if not hundreds, of, of young journalists and photographers who try and, and, and meet them and just get tips. Because it is one of the few professions where you really can have mentors and people can really uh, teach you on-the-job training. And so I just kept trying and trying and trying. And it wasn't until after September 11th that uh, I got my first assignment with the New York Times in Pakistan. And talk a little bit about what that assignment was, your first experience covering war in the Middle East. Well, I had, um, in 2000, after working in New York uh, in the late 90s for the Associated Press, I uh, moved to India. I wanted to become a foreign correspondent, a photographer, and I moved to India. And there I started covering women's stories and started covering humanitarian stories and human rights abuses and injustices against women. And I had a roommate at the time, and he said, look, uh, Afghanistan is right next door. And he had just come back from a trip to Afghanistan. And he said, you know, uh, it's a country under Taliban rule, and you're a woman, and you have access to women, and maybe you should go and photograph women there. And, and I never thought twice. I thought, okay, uh, how can I do this? And if he's going, and if, my, if other journalists are going, why can't I go? And so... It was never, um, I wasn't hindered by fear at that time. And so I started, he gave me a bunch of contacts and, and I started going. So I had a lot of experience. Uh, I made three trips to Taliban ruled Afghanistan before September 11th. So when September 11th happened, I had a lot of experience in the region. And I got on the first plane I could to Pakistan, which was the 21st of September. I arrived in Peshawar in Pakistan. And when was the first time that personal fear really took over, when you were in a situation that really made you afraid? So probably there were a few instances. I mean, I think the first time was probably the first time I was kidnapped outside of Fallujah in a village called Garma. And uh, it was right before the first siege of Fallujah that was called off. And uh, that was in April of 2004. And I was with a colleague for the New York Times, and we had heard that a helicopter had gone down with American troops, and we wanted to get there. But in order to get there, we had to take back roads to the area because the main highway had been closed off in preparation for the siege. And so we got, um, we were taking sort of the smuggler's route towards the area, and we basically ran directly into a checkpoint of insurgents, and they were Sunni insurgents sort of in the heart of the Sunni Triangle. And uh, we were held for a day there at gunpoint and really had to negotiate our own release by explaining we were journalists and we were there for them. And that was the first time I really experienced fear. 
Um, and I thought for sure that was the end. You talk about journalism as being a selfish profession. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that we, um, I know in terms of myself, and I can only speak from my own experiences, that I am so, uh, I'm so determined to do this work and, and to do it at all costs. And I, and for many, many years, I, I would just go on assignment after assignment after assignment and, and often leave loved ones behind and leave them worried for my safety. And so it's difficult because as selfless as it is in the sense that I'm trying to do this for the greater good and, and to benefit people, it's also very selfish because I go, I stay away for a long time, I put myself at risk, and it's often my family that suffers more than anyone. There's also a certain addiction to the excitement of it. You talk about coming home from one assignment that you felt more comfortable even in the danger of the battlefield with the threat of bullets flying than you did back home. Yeah, I don't think it's an addiction of the, to the excitement or addiction to the adrenaline. It's a sense of purpose. It is a sense that uh, of responsibility. And when when I had been living basically in Iraq for almost a year or a year and two years, I was there 2003 and 2004, I felt like I couldn't not be there because so much was happening. Soldiers were getting killed. Civilians were getting killed. There was a war going on, and I felt very strongly that people in America needed to see what was happening because I am American, and, and I did feel like we were sending troops to war, and we need to be there to document it. So it wasn't the addiction to adrenaline or it it wasn't that it was more a sense of responsibility. And one of the things that frustrated you that you talk about is that when you were back at home, that there wasn't this sense, this realization of the importance of what was taking place there, of this war that was going on. Yeah, I couldn't understand. And, and I think now at this point, I've, I've sort of learned to deal with it, but I could not understand how people weren't more engaged in the fact that we were at war as a nation. And and I think that people have become inured to images of violence and war and death because because since September 11th, we've been at war in Afghanistan, Iraq, and and now we see the push of ISIS, and, and we're seeing more graphic and violent images than ever. So for me, I couldn't believe that I could be in Iraq and two days later be in New York City and and it was as if we, nothing was happening. Talk a little bit about the images and, and what you've seen and what you try to focus on and capture in those horrific scenes in particular. For me, I'm trying to obviously tell the story of what's going on, but I'm trying to do it in a way that will engage the viewer, that will make them ask questions. That, that there, you know, I think what I just said, that we're, we we kind of get tired of seeing all these images and especially of violence and death. And, and I don't want people to turn the page. I want them to stop. I want them to say, oh, what's happening here? And so sometimes I look for the quiet images. I look for unique images in a war zone or something that will bring people in rather than repel them. Talk a little bit about reconciling your passion and excitement of the moment in these kinds of situations, in these dangerous situations, in war zones, with the objectivity of journalism and and trying to capture that 
at the same time, you're caught up in what's happening around you. I try. I think um, I've been doing this a long time, and I and I uh, I have, of course, my own opinions. But I try uh, all the time to make sure my responsibility is to the story, and my my attention is on telling the story in the best, most comprehensive way I can. That means accessing as many sides as I can and telling it in the most responsible and not sensational way. I'm not, I, I have no interest in, in playing into sensationalizing certain situations. I, I want people to see what it's like on the front line. I want people to see what it's like in people's homes, how families are living, how, how women and children are affected. So for me, it's really about getting access to as much as I possibly can. And how does this affect you? Talk a little bit about that. How does the, the images that you've seen all of these years, how has it impacted you? Well, I think for me, first of all, I feel incredibly fortunate. I think beyond, above and beyond anything, I feel so lucky uh, to have been born where I was born to an incredibly loving and supportive family and one that empowered me to do this work um, instead of trying to put me down. And so I think beyond anything, after witnessing so many years of hardship and death and, and injustice, I of course I feel lucky. I think it's hard to see people dying year after year after year, and I try not to lose hope. I try to always uh, think that, um, this work plays a difference, and, and this work really plays a part in shaping our foreign policy and in, and in informing people in a way that is necessary for everyone. Because don't ever take for granted the images that you see in the newspaper, because there is a photographer behind every one of those images. And that's something that people don't think about. One of the things you've been photographing is the refugee crisis, particularly coming out of Syria. Talk a little bit about that, Lindsay hard. I think we've all seen pictures of refugees, and it's one of those things when you walk into a refugee camp as a foreign journalist, it's very hard uh, to, uh, to create something different, to create something engaging, because we've, been, we've seen so many pictures of refugee camps, and people coming out of Syria are incredibly traumatized, and they, are, they have witnessed years of war at this point. So many of them have lost family members, and they're terrified because Assad is still in power in Syria. And so, so many of these refugees don't want to be photographed, or they're scared of repercussions. So I think it's important to be respectful of people, to ask their permission, to make sure that they're not politically active, because, you know, their family members who are still in Syria can get killed. So it's, it's important to to just tread lightly and to also try and tell the story in a way that will engage people. We've talked about how some of these photographs and some of these situations have impacted you, perhaps nothing more than the kidnapping that took place in 2011. Well, in 2011, I was covering the uprising in, in Libya, and uh, it was a popular uprising, so it was composed of doctors and engineers and teachers, and they had formed a revolution against Gaddafi. And for me and for all journalists who were covering that, uh, we had to sneak in through Egypt because Gaddafi did not want journalists covering that. And so we snuck in through Egypt, and very quickly, a handful of us, not many, uh, photographers made our way to the front line, and a few reporters as well. And we were covering the uprising and uh, for about two weeks, 
And uh, on the 15th of March, 2011, I was with Tyler Hicks, Anthony Shadid, and Steve Farrell. And we were covering the fall of Ajdabia, a town along the front line. And it was clear to us that Gaddafi's troops were moving in and moving towards us. And we made a decision to stay as long as we possibly could to get the freshest reporting, basically, because in a war, uh, things change minute to minute. And so you always feel like you want to keep staying and get as as much reporting as you can and as many photos as you can. And so we made that decision and we stayed too long, basically. Our driver was getting calls saying that it was time to leave, that Qaddafi's troops had entered the city. And by the time we made a collective decision to leave, we ran into one of Qaddafi's checkpoints. And we were held at gunpoint, threatened with death. Uh, they were going to execute us. In the very beginning, they made us lie face down on the ground and put their guns to our heads and were going to execute us. And and for about a week, we were beaten up, tied up, uh, and it was terrifying. One of the things you say is that in that incident is really when you decided that you wanted to tell your story, when you wanted to write this memoir. It was more after. Um, after I came out of Libya, I was approached by several literary agents. And I was ambivalent about taking it on because, first of all, I didn't know if I would be able to write a book. And I had never done a photo book, just a single book of my photographs. So I felt like if I'm going to do anything, it'll be a photo book. And so I started meeting with Aperture. Uh, which is a publisher of great photo books. And, and uh, in that meeting, I found out that my friends, Kim Hetherington and Chris Andres, had been killed in mm. Libya. And it was exactly a month after we had been released. And I had a sort of breakdown. I mean, I, I really, um, I was confused about why they ki- they were killed and we survived. And, and I sort of started dealing with all the trauma that I hadn't really dealt with because I didn't feel like I had felt, I didn't feel like I had trauma. And, as ridiculous as that sounds, I mean, obviously someone who's held at gunpoint for a week is going to suffer, but I, I felt like I was processing it. And so in that moment, I actually decided I don't want to sit with these photographs for the next year and do a photo book. I wanted to write. And so I went back to journals and letters and, and went back to my entire takes of photographs, not necessarily uh, my edits. And, uh, and I wrote a book. I had a great literary agent named Amanda Urban and an amazing uh, editor at Penguin, Anne Godoff, and they really ushered me through the process of writing a book. And as you went back and looked at all of this, talk a little bit about what process you went through in, in reliving some of this and in, in looking at all of this past work. It was interesting because I sort of, started out by writing vignettes. I wrote really um, sort of, to me, the most dramatic and, and, and um, sort of life-shaping incidents of my career. And I wrote everything down and I thought I was being very sort of candid. And then I submitted about 100,000 words. So I basically submitted the manuscript to Penguin. And at that point, uh, Anne Godoff, who is my editor, she said, you know, you might want to hire a private editor to just do like line-to-line editing and help you create the narrative arc. And so at that point, I hired a woman named Susie Hansen. And she, and I was very adamant that I wanted to write the book. I didn't want it in anyone else's voice and that this was something that I needed to do. And so she said, look, I'm going to take this. And she was a friend, so it was very easy, actually. And she sent me back the manuscript, chapter by chapter, with 
hundreds of questions. And so things that I necessarily didn't want to confront, she pulled out of me with questions. And it was an interesting process because I would be writing and find myself weeping as I was writing and breaking down crying. And I couldn't, I didn't want to let myself go to certain places. And so it became a very interesting process. And I definitely could not have done it without Susie because her her questions really prompted some of the most introspective parts of the book. And how has that shaped your work since you did that? No, I don't think it's different at all. The only thing that has changed in, in, in recent years is that I, had, I gave birth. I have a son. Uh, he's three years old. And I've lost a lot of friends lately. And, you know, after having been kidnapped twice, I can't, you know, I have to be careful. So in that sense, I'm still covering war zones. I'm still going to Afghanistan, still going to Iraq, still going to Sudan. Uh, but I'm trying to do it in a way uh, where I can make it home. And so I am more uh, conscious of my mortality. And is it a more dangerous business today? I mean, certainly when one looks at the difference between your 2003 kidnapping and the 2011 kidnapping, there's quite a difference in the sense of danger in the region. Yeah, I think it's a totally different world today than it was 10, 15 years ago. No question. I think, uh, particularly in the Middle East, journalists are targets in a way that we were not before. And so I think, um, you know, we all have to be very aware of where we're going, where, why we're going to tell a story, what the risks are, and to not go into something sort of cavalier and without doing your homework. Talk about how it's changed in this internet age when these images are literally flashed throughout the planet, throughout the world in an instant. Is that different in any way? Yeah, it is really different because, uh, first of all, we are expected to cover a situation and get it to our editors right away. So in the immediate sense, that means we can't stay and linger at a scene too long because we need to hurry up and get back and file day to day. Um, I think it also, it, it affects the people we're covering are aware that those images will get out there right away and that often uh, they'll be disseminated around the world so people will see them. And so people who, I don't know, 15 years ago didn't mind being photographed because, well, the images would never make it back to Afghanistan under the Taliban, now will never let you take their picture because they know people around the world will see it. So it's changed. Uh, it's changed everything, really. What do you still want to cover that you haven't? Hmm. Uh, I'd like to do more on uh, on migrants, and I'm doing that. I started doing that for the New York Times actually um, last year, and I'm still working on a big project. But I think I'm covering what I want to be covering, and I think that's thanks to the New York Times and to National Geographic and to the MacArthur Foundation. For me, I've I've been so lucky to have the support of these great organizations that it's not easy. I mean, I think for freelancers around the world, it's really difficult to get funding and get the support and to get the images published. Lindsay Adario, her book is It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. It's just out from Penguin Press. Lindsay, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.